Hello, Noblesville. It's good to be here this morning. Um, I don't know if, if I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you. Um, I always feel home here because we live in Noblesville, and so there's always so many friendly faces, but it's, it's great to be with you guys this morning. And you're in for a special treat today, okay? Um, I am sharing the same message with you that I shared last week in Carmel. This is a true story. Someone fell asleep and snored out loud. So if the, if the heat has sapped you this week and you're in need of a nap, I'm your guy and today's the day. I am so excited for you. If, you. if you doze off, please just don't snore, okay? That's all I ask. One lady said it sounded like Darth Vader was in the room. So if we can avoid that, we'll be good, okay? Let me pray and we'll jump in. Father, it's so good to be with our church family today. Uh, we're thankful for the gift of the church, uh, this body that we get to, to be a part of. Uh, that is centered on you, Jesus. All of our songs are about you. They are for you. Our time in the word is about you and for you. And so we pray that you would guide us today, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Your word, your word tells us it is sharper than any double-edged sword. And so I pray that you would pierce our hearts today, um, that you would make us aware of what you, not just what, what you want us to learn, but how you want us to live because of what we learn, because of what we know, and let it all be for your glory, Jesus. Uh, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so by show of hands, I need your help here. This is helpful for me. How many of you had, have visited the mountains recently? Could be any mountain range, any mountain range. Okay, a couple hands. There were more first service. Okay, now they're slowly, oh yeah, I've been to the mountains. That's right, that's right. If you're thinking of like Brown County, those are just big hills. We're talking like actual mountains. So this summer, our family got away to the mountains of Tennessee for a vacation. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. It was me and my siblings, all of their kids and my dad, 24 of us in one cabin in the hills just outside of Pigeon Forge. There were so, so many things we were excited for for this particular vacation. But of all the things I was looking forward to, I was really excited for my kids to get to see and experience the mountains for themselves. Our older two boys had been when they were younger, and they just couldn't remember, like, how big mountains are. And so as we're driving up to our cabin, I loved hearing my kids in the backseat ooing and aahing over, oh, look at how big it is and look at how big that valley is and how wide it is. And it was so cool. Then we got into our place and we're unpacking and we got to see, this is, our, this is the view from our back porch, okay? Now, pictures never do things justice. You know that, right? But this was the view that we got to enjoy every single day. And all 24 of us, we didn't talk about it, we didn't plan it, but all 24 of us at some point in the day would wander out to the back porch to take in the sights of the mountains and just enjoying how big and vast and wide all around us was this beautiful, beautiful mountain range. And one morning I was out there sipping my coffee, I was reading the Bible, I was kind of waking up and I was actually reading ahead for today's message, just kind of preparing a little bit. And God used this picture to teach me something or to remind me of something that I know to be true. And I wanna share it with, with you today. Um, oftentimes it's easy for us to read the Old Testament and think, well, these stories are a little obscure. They're, they're weird or they, they just don't seem to fit together. But today I wanna want help you see that the stories that we've been studying this summer, these Old Testament stories, they actually, they fit together in a way to help us understand the ancient past they fit together in a way that helps us make sense of the chaotic present that we're living in. And it's pretty chaotic out there, isn't it? Scripture explains why. But they also fit together in a way to help us understand an event that we're looking forward to. And so all these different places that we've been visiting in the Old Testament this summer, they're like mountain peaks and valleys that are leading us. That's like a mountain range that all fits together that is pointing us to something specific. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn today to Isaiah chapter 11. 
I want you to think of Isaiah chapter 11 as a mountain peak prophecy that we find in the Old Testament. And today, as we get ready to read Isaiah 11, I'm gonna take you on a tour of a couple of other mountain peak prophecies that help us understand that God's word from beginning to end is telling a story. And there's certain mile markers or mountain, or mountain peaks along the way, but they're all connected like a giant range. And there's a view that we can appreciate as we get there. So we're gonna talk about Isaiah 11 in a moment, but before we do, I'm gonna show you some other, or remind you of some, some other mountain peak prophecies that help us understand what we're gonna read in Isaiah 11. So the first two mountain peaks are found at the very beginning of scripture and they're very closely related. The first mountain peak is the story of creation. It's found in Genesis 1 and 2. And you're probably familiar with this story. It's a sticky story. God spoke creation into existence and he created man, the first man, Adam, the first woman, Eve, and he created them in his image and his likeness. Unlike anything else in all creation, he placed them in a garden on the earth and they were there to be his human representatives, to rule and reign the, over the earth and to get to enjoy a relationship with him. So that's our first mountain peak, okay? Now the next one happens in Genesis chapter three, the very next chapter. This is where sin and death enter into God's perfect creation. Satan steps onto the scene and he is able to trick Adam and Eve into rebelling against God. And when they do, sin and death become a reality. God's perfect creation is ruined. But in Genesis chapter three, God makes a promise specifically to Satan. He is speaking to Satan as a serpent. And this is what God says, Genesis 3.15. God says, I am gonna put enmity or hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. And pay attention to this word, he. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, if this prophecy sounds familiar to you, it's because we, we taught on this passage earlier back in June at the very beginning of our Sticky Stories series. And here's why this passage is so important. It's the first time in scripture that God promises to send a Messiah, someone that was going to come into the, onto the earth and to restore things back to the way that God wanted them to be intense for them to be. And notice he says, he, he doesn't say she, it, or they, he uses a singular masculine word. So we're gonna have a man born of a woman who will return to the earth as God's long-awaited and promised Messiah. And from this point forward, all throughout scripture, the question is, okay, well then who is he? And when is he gonna be here? And what is he going to be like? Now, I know that no one likes spoiler alerts, but this is one that I'm gonna spoil it for you if you don't already know. For the last 2,000 years, the writer of the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament and Christians all over the world, we all believe that Jesus is the promised he of Genesis 3.15. And all these mountain peak prophecies in the Old Testament, they all point to Jesus. They're all saying, he's coming, he's coming. This is what he is going to be like. And so I wanna show you how, I wanna take you on a, couple, on a tour of the mountains to show you how these prophecies point to Jesus and they're leading us to something important. So the next major mountain peak prophecy is found in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis 12, we meet an old man named Abraham and his wife, Sarah, Scripture tells us they were too old to have children and God makes a promise to both of them. It's a three-part promise. The first part of the promise is he says, I know you don't have a family right now, but I'm gonna give you a family and your future family is gonna grow into a mighty nation. And then the second part of the promise is your future family, I'm gonna give them a specific land that will belong to them forever. It will always be theirs. It'll be their inheritance. And then the third part of this promise, listen to this in Genesis 12:3. God says this to Abraham, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So stop and ask a question. How could all of humanity be blessed 
through Abraham and through his future family. Well, if you didn't know this, Abraham was a Hebrew and the Hebrews become known as the Jews. And so God is predicting the ethnicity of his coming future Messiah. The he of Genesis 3.15 is going to be Hebrew. He's going to be Jewish. So God's getting really specific. And then if you fast forward a few hundred more years, a prophet named Samuel, God says, I want you to go to the house of one of Abraham's great, 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 great grandsons, a man named Jesse. Remember Jesse. He's gonna come up in the story in a minute. I want you to go to Jesse's house and you're gonna anoint one of his sons to be the future king of Israel. Now, Jesse had eight sons, but as it turns out on that day, Samuel anointed his youngest son, David, Jesse's youngest son, David, to be the future king of Israel. A few years later, that's what happens. Several years into David's reign, David's reigning as king, and God makes a mountain peak prophecy and promise to David. In second, we find it in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is what God says to David. The Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you when your days are over and when you rest with your ancestors. In other words, David, after you die, God says, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. Look at verses 13 and 16. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Everybody say forever. Okay, your house and your kingdom will endure forever. Your throne will be established forever. Or as Squints would say, forever, forever, right? Now notice God repeats forever, forever, forever. What is he doing? He's helping David understand one of your future descendants isn't just gonna be the king of Israel. One of your future descendants is gonna be an eternal king who will rule over everything forever. Now, hit pause, that's a lot. I mean, we've basically skipped through, half, we've, we've taught through half of the Old Testament right there, so take a breather, and I want you to see how all of these things fit together. Look at this picture of the mountains, okay? And I want you to picture this first mountain peak, the one that's closest to us, that represents the story of creation. Genesis chapter one and two. And then you go out to the next mountain peak. That's Genesis chapter three. This is where sin enters into the world and God promises to send a Messiah. Go out a little further. That next mountain peak is Genesis chapter 12 where God says, oh, the Messiah will be Jewish. He's gonna come from Abraham's family. Go out a little further. Find the next peak. That's 2 Samuel 7 where God says, oh, he's gonna also come from the family line of David. And the reason I want you to look at this is I want you to see how these promises in the Old Testament, they seem unrelated, but actually they're leading us in a direction. And they all go back to this promise that God made to send a man who's gonna to come to the earth to restore all things, who's going to not just be an earthly king, but an eternal king. Now this is where the prophet Isaiah picks up the story in Isaiah chapter 11. In Isaiah chapter 11, he tells us what this future Messiah King is going to be like. And he tells us in great detail. Look at Isaiah 11, verse one. He says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Now, do you remember who's Jesse? He's David's father. So why would God, when he makes this big promise, why would he not mention the royal line of David? Why would he mention the humble line of Jesse? Well, here's why. If you read throughout the rest of Isaiah before this, God makes a promise to the leaders of Israel. He says, I am gonna cut all of you down like mighty trees because you're proud. 
And that's gonna leave a field full of stumps. But here he says, out of one of those dead stumps, a shoot will come up from the house of Jesse. This is God's way of saying, I'm gonna do something new and there's gonna be a humble shoot that will come up. So this new leader is going to be known for his humility. And then listen to how Isaiah describes him in verse two. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So verse one says, this delicate shoot is gonna come up from a dead stump. But now we learn that this delicate shoot is gonna be empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. Now this is really important because Isaiah is telling us that whenever this Messiah King comes, he's not gonna rule in his own power by his own motivation. He's going to be empowered specifically by the Spirit of God. And then Isaiah goes on and describes seven different characteristics that he's gonna have that'll be on display from the Holy Spirit. He says, this coming Messiah is gonna have, a per have perfect wisdom and understanding in all things. He's gonna be able to provide flawless counsel in all situations. He's gonna have a spirit of might to do whatever he desires in order to carry out God's perfect and holy will. He'll be empowered with an all-encompassing spirit of knowledge to make faultless decisions. And then I think this one's really important. The spirit of the fear of the Lord will rest on this coming Messiah King so that in all of his power, in all of his might, in all of his glory, he will willingly and humbly submit to God as his heavenly father. So clearly Isaiah is not talking about a normal human leader. He's talking about someone that would be different than anyone who was ever gonna rule and reign on the earth. Now, when you read through the New Testament accounts of Jesus's life in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the gospels, we learn that Jesus fulfilled all of these prophecies with great precision. But specifically, when it comes to his relationship with the Holy Spirit, I want you to read, I want you to hear how Matthew and Luke describe an event in Jesus's life when he was 30 years old. It's his baptism. Look at Luke 3, 21. It says, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was open and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now, this is a really important passage of scripture because the Trinity is there all together. God the Father is speaking from heaven, declaring that Jesus is his son and the Holy Spirit is resting upon him. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But listen to how Luke describes Jesus in Luke 4.1. I think this should be encouraging for us. Jesus, full of the Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So Jesus, in his humanity, was filled with and led by the Holy Spirit. The same promise that the New Testament writers make to us when our faith is in Jesus, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is like us. We're like Jesus in this way. But here's what I want you to see in Luke. Luke is saying, pay attention. Isaiah promised that the coming Messiah King would be filled with the Holy Spirit. It happened. It's Jesus. You don't have to look any further. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've been in church your whole life, you might be thinking, okay, Jerry, I get it. I already believe this. Like, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the reason that we're here today. He's the reason that we sing songs. He's the reason that we open up scripture. And Jesus is the reason that we gather together on Christmas to celebrate his birth as the Son of God. And Jesus is the reason that we gather together on Easter to celebrate his death and his burial and his resurrection. So God's plan of salvation is on display. But here's what I want you to see from a prophetic 
perspective. As important and amazing and miraculous as his birth and death and burial and resurrection are to the story of our faith, it's not the end of the story that God is telling. There is a promise that we are waiting to see fulfilled. And I want you to look, picture it like this. Look back at the picture of the mountains. Do you see that mountain peak way off in the distance? The really tall one, it's kind of faded. It looks really far away. And you can't tell how many peaks and valleys are in between there. That represents a promise that God has made that we are waiting to see fulfilled. It represents a promise that all creation right now is yearning and aching to see fulfilled. And it is a promise that Isaiah spells out for us in great detail in Isaiah 11. So I'm gonna read for you Isaiah 11, verses three down through nine. And I just want you to, to gather a mental picture in your mind of the world that Isaiah is describing. He says this in verse three. And he, referring to the Messiah, will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Verse five, righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a child, a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. Verse 8, the infant will play near the cobra's den, the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest, there will be neither harm, they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now that is a really beautiful, poetic description given to us by Isaiah. But here's my question. Does that sound like the world that you and I are living in right now? Where the wolf and the lamb lie down together? Are we living in a world where you don't have to worry about your kids and your grandkids and the things that might happen to them or the next thing they might be exposed to? Are we living in a world where the perfect righteousness of God is being pursued and valued by all mankind? Or a world where the flawless justice of God is on full display against the wickedness of the world. The picture that Isaiah paints in Isaiah 11 couldn't be more different than the world that you and I are living in. I don't know if you've noticed or turned on the news lately. Our world is losing its mind. It's losing its mind. And if, if you think, about the time you think, I've seen the strangest, darkest, scariest thing I could ever imagine possible, all you have to do is wait five more minutes and check your feed and the next thing's gonna happen and you're gonna say, what? What is going on? If you're a student, the world hasn't always been this way. It's been bad, but it hadn't always been this way. So why, like what is Isaiah talking about? Well, here's the good news. Isaiah isn't talking about the world we're living in right now. Isaiah is painting a picture of what the world will be like the day that the Messiah King returns to the earth when his feet touch planet earth and the righteous rule of God is revealed. And that's gonna be the day that Jesus returns in all of his power, in all of his glory, and in all of his might. Now, I don't know if you guys heard the big news. I think it's been three weeks ago now. Taylor Swift announced that she is coming to Indianapolis next fall, the fall of 2024. Have you heard this? Okay, 
I was, I think it happened on a Thursday. I was at work. I had no clue. And I came home from work. Now my kids, they're not big Swifties. They like, we all have songs of hers that we like, but one of my kids, literally, this is how they came into our house. Taylor Swift is coming to Indianapolis. Can you believe it? And I was like, okay, okay, cool. And it's like, that's all everybody was talking about at school today. And then that night we hosted our small group, a bunch of 20 somethings. And they were all talking about Taylor Swift coming to town. They were so excited. And maybe you've met somebody that's actually got tickets to the show. Have you noticed they're so excited they can't shake it off? They're freaking out. They, They can't even breathe. When Taylor Swift comes to town, it's a big deal. It's revitalizing entire economies. People are like, bring her over here. We need her help. But I want you to hear how Isaiah describes the return of Jesus to the earth in Isaiah 11. He says, in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. Isaiah says, when the Messiah King, when Jesus returns to the earth, everyone everywhere will know. It won't be localized, it won't be secret. Everyone will know and people will be drawn to him. People will be aware. And when he returns, he is going to bring his righteous rule with him. And that includes the power to defeat sin and death once and for all, which interestingly is also a mountain peak prophecy and promise that Isaiah shares with us. In Isaiah 11, we talk about a coming king. Well, later in Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, Isaiah says, but I need to tell you what the Messiah is gonna be like first. Before he can come as a king, he's gonna gonna come like this. Listen to how Isaiah describes him. Isaiah 53, three, he will be despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. So the Old Testament says the Messiah King is gonna come through the royal line of David. And you think it would be like this big affair, but we learn in the gospels that Jesus was born off the radar. He was born to poor peasant parents, The angels appeared to the shepherds, but outside of that, no one really knew. And Jesus, as he grew up, he lived a life of poverty, rejection, and suffering. And Isaiah says, this is what he's gonna be like. He's gonna be a man of suffering. Listen to Isaiah 53, five. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. Now this is a fascinating prophecy. This was written 700 years before Jesus lived and 300 years before crucifixion had even been invented. And in the gospel accounts, we learn that Jesus fulfilled it perfectly when his hands and feet were stretched out and he was nailed to a cross. And Isaiah predicted it. Listen to Isaiah 53, nine. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Isaiah predicted that the Messiah King would be killed among criminals. The gospels tell us Jesus was crucified between two criminals. Isaiah predicted that he would be buried with the rich. The gospels tell us that a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea, who had followed Jesus from a distance, donated a brand new tomb for Jesus's dead body to be laid in. And then listen to Isaiah 53, 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Isaiah says it will be the will of God to crush the coming 
Messiah for the sins of the earth. But listen to Isaiah 53, 11. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life. Isaiah predicted the Messiah's death and his resurrection. He would see the light of life. Again, that's pretty miraculous. And then listen to 53, 12. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. You see, Isaiah 11 describes a coming, conquering king. But Isaiah says, first, he will come as a suffering servant. He will die for the sins of all mankind so that anyone that would put their faith in him would be forgiven of their sins. They would be restored in their relationship with God so that they would be ready for his return when he came again. Now, this is where the story gets sticky because that is the message of the gospel in the New Testament. Jesus fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies perfectly. He wasn't just born of a woman. The Old Testament predicted he'd be born of a virgin. That's the story of Jesus. He would be born, predicted that he would be born in Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem. That's the story of Jesus. He would be born of the family of Abraham. He would be born in the royal line of David. He would die on a cross. He would rise from the dead. Jesus has fulfilled all of these prophecies. And now, as the risen Messiah King, he offers forgiveness to anyone who would be willing to admit, I have sinned against God. And I am trusting in you as the Messiah King to pay for my sins. Our world appears to be sinking into a deep, dark, scary pit. But we're not sinking into a pit. It's just a valley that is leading to a peak, a mountain peak when the Messiah was going to return. And there's a lot of debate about how and when and where he's going to return. And if you read throughout the New Testament, this is just in my brief study there's lots of talk about Jesus's return, but the way that Jesus talks about it most frequently, especially at the very end of Revelation, the word that he uses is soon. If you go to the end of Revelation, Revelation uh, chapter 22, the last chapter in scripture, on three occasions, Jesus says, I am coming soon, I am coming soon, I am coming soon. Now, how soon is soon? Well, I guess when you're the Messiah King and you die for the sins of the world and you're the son of God, you get to decide when soon is, or your father gets to decide when soon is. In the meantime, we just live for soon. And we don't live as people, we don't have to live in fear. We get to live in hope because we know who he is. We know that he has come once. We know that he is coming again. We know that he has the power to conquer sin and death. We know that he is going to install God's righteous reign for eternity. So we don't have to be afraid of his return, but we do have to be ready. One of the most pivotal moments in my life happened in the living room of my future in-laws. Uh, I'm dating their daughter and they're getting to know me. And they knew that I grew up in church, but my mother-in-law, one of the sweetest people on the planet, one of the biggest spiritual influences in my life. She was just trying to get to know this guy that's dating her daughter. And we were just having a normal conversation. And one night she asked a really simple question. She said, hey, Jerry, what do you believe about the return of Jesus? And this was so pivotal for me, I can still remember what the room looks like. Because in that moment, the Holy Spirit revealed something to me. I grew up in a great church, 
Great church family. I grew up in a, my, my parents taught me there's one God in heaven. Jesus is his son. He has come to die to pay for your sins. I knew all the things. But when my future mother-in-law said, what do you believe about the return of Jesus? I realized, wait a minute, you actually know him. I just know about him. And the Holy Spirit convicted me. If he were to return in that moment, I was not ready. If he were to return, there was a line that was drawn and she would go to be with him and I would not. And she just asked a simple caring question. It wasn't like she was condemning in it, but the Holy Spirit pierced my heart. And several weeks later, I confessed my sins. I began to follow Jesus. I was baptized into him and my life has never been the same. Now I am sharing that story with you because I wanna do the same thing for you that my mother-in-law did for me. And I just got a really simple question. Are you ready for the return of Jesus? Do you know that you're ready? Do you know how to be ready? In Revelation 21, Jesus says this, I will wipe away every tear from your eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Jesus says, I am gonna come and make everything new and he invites us to be a part of that. But how do you know if you're ready? Will you know you're ready if you have verbalized that faith in him? And so if you have verbalized, I am a sinner, I have broken my relationship with God because of sin, and I am trusting in the death and the burial and in the resurrection of Jesus as my Savior King. You are ready, and here's the good news. You don't have to be afraid. You were not called to be a secret agent for Jesus where you have this little badge, and on occasion you flash it like, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I don't want anybody to know. He says, you live your life and you put my love on display. You show people what I'm like. You tell them I am coming again and I love them and I want to forgive them. So if you know that he has come and you believe, then go live like it. We have to live like it. It's what we're called to do. Our king is coming soon. But if you've never verbalized that, I would say you're not ready. And I don't say that to scare you. I say that to warn you because there will be a day that the king returns Jesus, in his own words, tells a parable. And he says, in that day, the Son of Man will separate people like sheep and goats. The sheep are people that have put their trust in the good shepherd. They have confessed their faith. The goats are people that refused to. The sheep get to live in an eternity with Jesus because they're forgiven. The goats are cast away to hell, not because God's a jerk. He's just. Sin has to be paid for. And so these people, they get what they've always wanted. They get life apart from God for eternity, but that's not, his, that's not what he wants. He's calling us to him. So if you've never verbalized your faith, today could be the day. I'd be happy to talk with you after service and pray with you, but you can receive what Jesus has to offer in forgiveness. In just a moment, our worship team is going to sing a song about the return of Jesus, and they're gonna sing it over us. The song might be familiar to you, Maybe you've never heard it before. I'm gonna give you a moment to just kind of take those words in. But before we get to that point, I wanna read for you Revelation 19, this picture that John paints of the day that Jesus returns. Revelation 19, verse 11, John says, I saw heaven standing open and before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows, but he himself, he is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. John says he's coming riding on a white horse that symbolizes victory. He's not coming riding on a donkey. 
He's not come coming riding on an elephant. This isn't like a political thing for him. This isn't a four-year office he is applying for. He is coming as the eternal king of kings to make everything right. Then John says this, the armies of heaven were following him, riding on a white horse and dressed in fine white linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has written the name, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. If you hear that passage and you're excited, you're ready. Go live like you're ready. Let others know the King is coming. If you hear that passage and you're afraid, you don't have to be. You can confess your sins and find life in the Messiah King Jesus today. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that your eternal plan of salvation doesn't include you forgetting about us. You remembered us in every way. You promised to send your son, born of a woman, through the family of Abraham, through the line of David, who would stretch out his hands and be crucified for our sins. Jesus, we thank you and we worship you as our coming and eternal Messiah King. Would you help us to put our faith on display? Would you help us to share our hope in you with the rest of the world? Would you guide us through the valleys? Would you keep our eyes set on the peaks? Because there'll be a day that you return to make all things right. I wanna pray for anyone in this room, anyone that is listening to my voice, that has never surrendered to you, would you do for them what you did for me? Would you open their heart and help them to respond and to receive the joy of their salvation, the forgiveness of sins, the gift of your Holy Spirit and an excitement of your future return, Jesus. We love you and we praise you and we lift our hearts to you now. Amen.